You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll learn about how the city's mental health system serves, or doesn't, those it's meant to help. We'll also talk about Mental Health SF, a compromise struck between two proposals that would have competed on the March 2020 ballot. I think it would have split the vote. The mayor has a lot of political clout, and when the mayor puts on a ballot measure, you'll get votes out of that. And it's also confusing. Now that a deal has been reached, what action can we expect from City Hall on mental health? What we'll see is a, an increase in individuals accessing true services, accessing clinical services, getting medications that they can afford. The enactment of this will truly impact the quality of life of everybody in San Francisco itself. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. The city's supervisors and the mayor have made peace and combined two dueling proposals for addressing the needs of those with mental health issues in the city's streets. Until Tuesday, the two proposals were expected to develop into competing ballot measures that the voters would have to weigh in on in March of next year. But then a deal was announced. City leaders will now steer us toward a program called Mental Health SF, which will focus on providing mental health services to the unhoused and vulnerable and will include a 24-hour mental health drop-in center. The news comes just about a week after the Mental Health Association of San Francisco wrapped up its two-day conference on mental health titled Redefining Crazy. It's the system, not the people. To help us understand how that system does and doesn't serve the people it's supposed to help and how San Francisco can now be expected to change course on mental health, we're talking with Mark Salazar. He's the executive director of the Mental Health Association of San Francisco, which offers peer support groups, non-emergency phone and chat support, and mental health training workshops. Mark, thanks so much for being here. Uh, Thanks for having me. So like I said, your association recently wrapped up a conference looking at how the system does and doesn't work. Can you give us an overview? What does the landscape of mental health support services look like in San Francisco today? So today, as our understanding is that the system is still fragmented. So one person can jump from organization to organization uh, without having coordinated care or coordinated support. So when they seek services, say, from you know uh, another organization like RAMS, uh, we wouldn't know that as the Mental Health Association of San Francisco. What's RAMS? RAMS is the Richmond Area Multi-Services uh, incorporation. So they provide um, both clinical and peer mental health support uh-huh. to individuals. Uh, they mainly focus on the Asian American communities, um, but you know they provide great service. But we wouldn't necessarily know if someone from our program actually went to RAMS mm. or something of that nature. So we want to try to say, hey, you know, let's work together as a system to help this individual because you know they can be receiving a whole different level of service from something we know uh, and we won't be effective in how to support this individual if we don't know what they've been doing. Mm-hmm. So, And that's like, it, it's interplayed throughout the entire city. Um, people don't know what each other, what each organization is doing and how can you provide effective um, quality support to someone if you don't know what they've received or are, haven't received. Yeah. Among the high-level problems pointed out by the promotional literature for the conference is long wait times, no peer support, and unaffordable treatment. So basically, it's hard to find help that you can afford without having to wait for an appointment for a long time. And until then, you're on your own. Can you elaborate on those three problems? Um, How expensive is care? How long are these wait times? And what impact does that have? Yeah. um, So... 
just from our staff members. So we have private insurance, you know, we, all that fun stuff. I, I don't want to name healthcare systems, uh, but they have waited for four to eight weeks just to see the therapist. One of our clinicians who provides therapy to our groups, she has to wait five weeks to see her own therapist. On a regular basis? On she a has regular to wait basis. Five weeks? Yeah, she has to wait five weeks. Uh, yeah. So what happens if you're in a crisis? That's the question we were trying to answer Mental Health SF, the new initiative. What happens to the individuals who can't wait those four, five, six weeks? Mm-hmm. How do you treat and support them? So that's one big issue. Sorry, what happens right now if you have private insurance and you face that kind of a wait time? Nothing. You just sit and wait. And that's the problem with the entire system. You sit and wait and... Sometimes someone deteriorates into a state where they become debilitated, right? Yeah. Or sometimes they become super resilient and find other resources. But it's usually left back in the hands of the individual who properly is looking for mental health services but just can't access them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on top of that, so, you know, you can't even afford it for most people. Usually the co-pays or sometimes insurance isn't even taken. It's usually about $100 or more per hour with therapists you know what someone told me once is would i rather buy food for me and my family or see a therapist wow that's a challenging question right or you know do i pay utilities this week or do i see a therapist and that to us is one of the most devastating questions we've ever asked like how do we support that individual that has to make that type of life uh decision you know yeah Well, one of the issues that you raise also is no peer support. Mental Health Association of San Francisco does provide peer support. Are are you one of the few that do, or how difficult is it to get that peer support in the meantime? It's becoming mainstream to a degree, but it's still pretty difficult because um, there hasn't been uh, a lot of um, clinical integration to it. So that means, you know, a lot of the clinical treatment groups or treatment centers they don't integrate peers within their model. Um, but research has shown that having peers within the model actually is super helpful. Uh, it helps reduce readmissions to the hospital. It helps improve uh, long-term he- uh, mental health outcomes for individuals. And so having that as part of someone's care is actually beneficial, but that's really difficult uh, within the health system itself. And peer support generally is free, right? Yeah, it's generally free, but we feel like it's valuable. So we are advocating that peer support and peer services should be paid because what the individuals are doing is a valuable service to the individual. It's helping um, not only them, but their families and the entire system reducing costs and all that stuff. What are some situations that I, let's say, might be able to get support with through Mental Health SF, or sorry, what are some situations I might be able to get support through from the Mental Health Association of San Francisco's peer programs? Yeah. So one of the basic things is if you're not in crisis but are getting close to it, we encourage you to call our warm line. It's 24, well, getting to 24-7. That's one of our mandates. Um, and you can call them anytime you want for any reason. You don't have to be, uh, you know, a very particular you don't have to seek a very particular issue uh, to call them. You can call them anytime you want um, for any purposes. We, our goal is our, we strive to actually um, prevent you from going into crisis. Um, so that's one. The other is uh, one-on-one peer coaching. So if you feel like you, know, you could um, 
do better with an individual coaching you through it, not necessarily being a you know therapist or anything, but just a peer uh, to help kind of advocate for you or uh, be emotionally supportive throughout your recovery or throughout a very particular process, uh, we provide those services as well. Uh, and then we have uh, support groups uh, varying to varying degrees on uh, different topics so that you can at least go within your own community and seek support from others going through the same situation. Uh, and one of the, the greatest things that we're known for or what we've been known for is our hoarding disorder programs. Um, we provide that with, you know, we provide a lot of peer support there, one-on-one -on -one peer support, uh, drop-in support crews. We do trainings um, uh, for both professionals, family members, and we lead clinical groups for individuals as well. So that actually has been part of a national, not national, but a, a local study that's been a part of, um, that's been sub uh, published into various um, uh, publications uh, that have kind of really reiterated the fact that peer support can actually be helpful. Oh, wow. So you were part of a clinical study? Yeah. So a few years ago, with uh, in partnership with UCSF, uh, Dr. Carol Matthews, we studied the difference uh, in outcomes between a clinician-led uh, treatment group that's 16 weeks long versus a peer-led treatment group. It just um, repackaged CBT in a more layman's term version. What's uh, CBT? For cognitive behavior know. therapy. Mm -hmm. And that's usually uh, seen as the golden rule in treating hoarding disorder. Mm -hmm. So what um, we found is a, a writer uh, uh, by the name or a peer by the name of Lee Shore and an expert in hoarding, uh, Dr. Randy Frost, they repackage or rewrote CBT in a way where individuals at home can provide or get, you know, go through the process themselves. Um, what they did on top of that was create a clinical, not clinical, but a community-based group where they use the same uh, techniques in CBT but led by peers. Mm. Uh, within that study, it, sh it showed that uh, peers can be as effective or sometimes more effective than the clinician. Wow. Do you have any idea why? Um, so there, there's various uh, elements to it. Um, one of the primary reasons that we're pointing to is that when you talk to a peer, you're more engaged because you understand that that same individual has gone through the same thing as you. So and a peer in this case is not just somebody who's in like your age or demographic. No. It's somebody who's been there. Yeah, who's been there, who has hoarding disorder themselves and mm. are either you know in recovery or on that same journey as you. I'm glad you bring up hoarding because it looked to me like there was quite a bit of emphasis at the conference on hoarding and cluttering behaviors. You yourself serve as the chair of the San Francisco Task Force on Hoarding. To my understanding, hoarding is a significant challenge, especially in San Francisco, because it's a behavior that can threaten somebody's housing situation. Is that right? And, and what should we understand about hoarding? Yeah, um, hoarding disorder affects so many things in an individual's lives. So once an individual, um, you know, say they're living in a rent-controlled home uh, and they're discovered to have a lot of stuff in their home, their, uh, their landlord can effectively uh, say they violated the lease and essentially start the eviction process. Um, and someone can't react like that because it, it doesn't take you know, three days for someone to clean their home. It took years for them to accumulate stuff. Right. And expecting someone to change their behavior within three days is uh, ludicrous to me. Uh, and so, you know, when you begin that process and then it, the individual goes to into a f uh, fight or flight mode, uh, they don't know what to do. And 
one of the funniest things that we've seen is that um, landlords have uh, placed eviction notices late Friday evening, Ugh. and that's and that's what we say. That's the the that's the the trick that they use. Friday evening, no advocacy group is open. You know, no law group is open. So we intend, we've been purposeful in keeping staff members uh, late Friday because we know that's when the landlords come in. And uh, we uh, developed a super bright pink uh, flyer for this if somebody uh, actually has uh, received an eviction notice. So we share that within the task force, within the community. Just call this number. We have a dedicated staff member working on uh, just whoring disorder itself to support you, guide you through it, and all that fun stuff. Yeah, it doesn't really sound fun at all when you get an eviction notice. No, it does not. It's Friday evening. What are you doing? Somebody knocks on your door like, oh, you're getting uh, an eviction notice. Yeah, well, for something also that, you know, is is a problem that you might need help to deal with. I think it's worth noting that the Mental Health Association of San Francisco has a page dedicated to this. It has a couple of questions you can ask yourself to see if this is actually something you might struggle with. And I found it also really important that you list what you do and what you don't do. And one of the things you don't do is judge or criticize a person who's getting help. And you also don't touch or remove people's possessions. So what is the process like of starting to address this this problem? So from our standpoint, when you know we say we don't judge, we really don't. Because everybody has their own issues, no matter what it is. And you wouldn't judge someone for having a broken leg. You wouldn't judge someone for having cancer. So why would you judge someone for having a mental health issue? And that's how we approach it. You can't create trust and and a bond when you're like when you're just judging someone like oh you have so much stuff why would I then I ask you for help if you're going to judge everything I do because the the relationship between an individual and their stuff is akin to like uh, we've used having children uh, it's a very sentimental very emotional attachment to things and it's not necessarily the things itself it's just the emotional connection that they have with it, it could be a memory of someone it could be sentimental and all that stuff uh, so being judgy about their things is you're placing judgment on them as the individual. So, you know, we equate it usually to physical illnesses. Like, you, you, you don't do that to somebody, and why would they ask for help around that issue? Yeah, absolutely. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. We'll return to this conversation with Mark Salazar, Executive Director of the Mental Health Association of San Francisco, in just a moment. KSFP would like to thank the awesome, forward-thinking institutional supporters of the San Francisco Public Press, including the San Francisco Foundation, the James Irvine Foundation, the Reva and David Logan Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Jonathan Logan Family Foundation, the Ethics and Excellence in Journalism Foundation, the Fund for Nonprofit News at the Miami Foundation, the Fund for Investigative Journalism, the California Endowment, the Center for Cultural Innovation, the Institute for Nonprofit News, and the local independent online news publishers. This is KSFP-LP San Francisco, 102.5 FM. Welcome back to Civic. Let's get back to our conversation with Mark Salazar, Executive Director of the Mental Health Association of San Francisco. 
So let's get to the news. City officials have now worked out a deal to combine two mental health proposals. One was put forward by supervisors Hillary Ronan and Matt Haney, and it was called Mental Health SF, which the new proposal now also has that as its name. And I should note also that Ronan was a speaker at your conference, so maybe there's more to talk about there. This proposal was designed to provide universal mental health care to all city residents. It included a 24-hour drop-in center with access to psychiatrists and medication for anyone who needed them, regardless of insurance and a variety of other proposals. The other plan was by Mayor London Breed, and it was called Urgent Care SF. It focused care specifically on 4,000 homeless individuals struggling with both their mental health and or substance abuse. Now we have a combined plan. That focuses more on homeless individuals and people on Medi-Cal and Healthy San Francisco, but it also includes the development of that 24-hour drop-in center. Instead of being a new building, it'll now be developed at the existing Behavioral Health Access Center on Howard Street. This new hybrid plan was introduced at yesterday's Board of Supervisors meeting, and now the city will embark on convening an 11-member working group to make recommendations to the board, to the mayor, the health department, about how to actually do this. Let's start big picture. What impact do you expect Mental Health SF as it stands now could have on the city? Yeah, I mean, Mental Health SF, in SF's original goal was universal mental health access. And this is one of the only initiatives in the nation that actually tries to achieve that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it serves the homeless, the uninsured, the med- people on Medi-Cal, uh, people on SF um, health. And with the ability to just say, hey, you need mental health services, you can go to the um, you know, mental health service building. That just in itself is super powerful. You don't, you, know, you don't need insurance. You can just walk in there and ask for help. And to me, just allowing that access to mental health services, I think will transform uh, the quality of life of individuals in the city. In, in what ways? I mean, what is the biggest difference to you between what we have now and what Mental Health SF seeks to provide? I mean, as you mentioned earlier, we talked about access, right? Mm -hmm. That's one of the biggest barriers here. And by eliminating that barrier to getting care, I feel that what we'll see is an increase in individuals accessing true services, accessing clinical services, getting medications that they can't afford um, for, you know, their mental health issues. And so the enactment of this, I, I think we're truly impact the quality of life of everybody in San Francisco itself. Mental Health Association of San Francisco was one of the stakeholders, if I understand correctly, that was consulted about how to create this or what should be in it. When you were first approached or your organization was first approached, what were some items or policies that were really important from your perspective to be added? For us, the two biggest things that uh, I wanted to see and our organization wants to see was both the peer mo- uh, concept in there. We wanted to make sure that peers were a part of the crafting of the bill. We wanted to make sure peers are part of the system itself. Um, there's that saying, nothing about us without us. That's what our motto at the organization is. We, need, we always need someone that has been through the experience themselves to really advise the system to make it better for people. Uh, And the second thing was integration, like I was mentioning earlier. Everybody is kind of just doing their own thing without even truly talking to one another on how one particular person is doing. 
So how can someone truly improve when they're receiving so many different services, getting different diagnoses, uh, but not truly getting integrated care? And the whole shift in the entire healthcare system itself is about integrated care. So why are we not integrating mental health? And to me, that just confounded me as an individual. I'm like, hey, if the whole health system is doing this, why can't we bring that same parity to the mental health system? Mm -hmm. So those are the two biggest things that we wanted to go in uh, making sure that that's part of this whole process. What would that look like exactly, integrating these systems? Because my impression is it's not necessarily just somebody who might be getting services from a variety of different places, but somebody who might not be getting services when they go to a variety of different places and just isn't being served. I mean, how, how does that, how does the system capture all those different contacts? And, and so that's the great thing about Menelth SF. They have the Office of Coordinated Care. Their whole goal at the Office of Coordinated Care is once someone enters the system that we understand where they are, we have a treatment plan for them, and we know what available beds are there for them, what um, available respite services are available, um, where they can go for medical services and all that stuff. We, we want to know where they're going, what they have and have not received, and that's the beauty of the, um, the Coordinated Care Office. We, and that doesn't exist yet, right? That's proposed. No, yeah, it's proposed within this um, uh, legislation. Just from a political process perspective, do you think things would have turned out differently if we had ended up with competing ballot measures like the original kind of plan was? I, I think it would have split the vote. Um, you know, the mayor has a lot of political clout, and when the mayor puts on a ballot measure, you'll 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 get votes out of that, and it'll and it's also confusing. You know, you like hey, totally. yeah, it's like hey, what's this urgent s you know urgent uh, care SF thing, and what's this mental health SF thing, and they're they're trying to achieve the same goals but just different tactics. Yeah. Uh, for me, on a political spectrum, is that urgent. Uh, care SF should be things that we're doing now. Mm. It should be it should be things that the Department of Public Health should be doing. But what do you think about this focus, this renewed focus rather on people who are living unsheltered rather than trying to f really commit to making it universal for everybody? Um, in terms of cost, it, it, it is, it's a pretty big price tag. I, I think yes. if you've read the legislation, it's about $400 million. Wow. Yeah. Um, $100 million to implement, but to make sure you know it, it really works, you, you need a hefty amount uh, of funding. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I think in the long run, by serving these individuals, you know, the unhoused individuals, the return on investment from us as a city is, is the savings down the road. So if there's studies by Rand uh, in LA who just housed individuals. They saved $20 million by housing individuals themselves. So instead of spending $36 million on emergency services, giving them a home uh, for the year cost them about 16 to 20 million, you save $16 million. So it, it's just a return on the investment. And I think even though the price tag is so large, the savings and the support we can provide these individuals will save the entire city money down the road. Yeah, I mean, Marilyn and Breed even said as she was announcing this, this is going to be expensive. And part of the reason why is the city needs to hire new clinicians, outreach workers, case managers, implement a variety of reforms, build this new center. And she was urging supervisors to work with her on finding the funding for it. What's the city's track record like when it comes to investing in mental health? I mean, we currently spend, you know, a huge amount of money on mental health itself. Um, I think by reorganizing the system and 
getting funding uh, with, with enough grassroots support, we think we can get um, we can get the funding. So Prop C a few years ago uh, that passed, you know, that has integrated mental health services within supportive housing. So I, I think the the supervisor, the mayor, I don't want to comment really on their dynamics, uh, but I think with grassroots support uh, from the stakeholders that were part of the process, we can actually get it passed if, you know, whatever ballot measure that would be. When you say the city currently spends a huge amount, do you know how much? Not off the bat. I, I can't tell you exactly. I, I, I Roughly, I, I think in three, the 300 million range, if I'm not mistaken. The focus of this program is supposed to be people with mental illness and or those who are struggling with substance abuse who live on the streets, like we were just talking about. But another aspect of it is to establish the Office of Insurance Accountability. This is going to be a city agency whose job is to advocate for insured people who aren't getting access to the mental health care that they're entitled to in a timely manner. For those of us who might not have duked it out with our insurance system when it comes to paying for care and getting it in a timely manner, we did touch on the timely manner part. But can you give some insight into what that process can be like and what impact having this insurance accountability office might have? Yeah. So our staff alone, like I mentioned, we, we have a few staff members trying to get service. It took four to six weeks. It's exhausting. That you know, It creates extra stress on them. It's a burden just to have a conversation of why am I not why am I not seeing a therapist sooner than later um, the I think what I've said in the past is depression does not wait for you anxiety does not wait for the for your therapist no mental health uh, challenge waits for a therapist so why should the same individual wait for that therapist so th- that's been our case for for that yeah as far as getting insurance to actually pay for the care what's that process like Th- uh, it's like herding cats. It's so difficult. <laughs> it, it's a challenge for us just to even get that the reimbursement for it. Um, one of our staff members, yeah, like I was mentioning, it, it it took her two or three months just to get you know just to make sure she gets reimbursed for it, or at least the their health insurance paying for it. Uh, we're hoping with the Office of Insurance Accountability is that we have some teeth for the city attorney to say, hey, you know, you're not living up to the laws of mental health parity. Uh, mental health parity is to allow, um, to bring mental health uh, services equal to the medical services that we have with insurance. Mm. If, e, uh, if an insurance carrier is not um, providing that same level, then they are failing to meet parity. And so the city attorney then has the right uh, on behalf of the client to advocate for that and and actually, you know, if there is a uh, warrant for a lawsuit or something of that nature, that they can go after uh, private insurance for it. So we, we think it'll nudge insurance, well, nudge insurance carriers to kind of, hey, you know, they're seeking services. We should work on expanding uh, the available uh, clinicians or services that we have in the community. Do you know if through this new proposal, through the new Mental Health SF program, if I have insurance but it doesn't cover mental health services. Am I considered uninsured for the purposes of accessing mental health services, or am I considered insured? That I can't tell you exactly. It's a little more technical mm-hmm. than, than of my understanding. Uh, you know, if you have insurance, we expect that in mental health coverage is a part of that insurance. Um, that's part of the mental health parity law. <laughs> okay, just checking. Yeah. 
I want to go back to this focus on people who are living with mental illness or substance abuse issues who are living on the streets. There's definitely a perception that mental illness is a problem disproportionately for people living on the streets. It might be more visible for somebody who isn't sheltered because you, you know, they, they have nowhere to go if they're in crisis. Is that really warranted? What's the mental health of San Francisco residents overall like? I mean, for from what we understand, it's not warranted. A lot of the individuals who are unhoused or homeless um, don't necessarily have a mental health issue, but being on the street for a long period of time definitely will have, you know, will cause or uh, exacerbate. create exacerbate yeah. issues. So the the correlation between mental health and homelessness is not necessarily true, uh, but like I'm saying. The longer you stay on the street, it will have long-term effects on someone's mental health. Yeah, the stress of it, the physical challenges of continuing on on the street is also, you know, will take a toll on somebody. So, the outright claim saying, you know, mental health is associated with individuals who are homeless, that we 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 challenge that claim. Mm-hmm. Would you say that? There's, I mean, can you give any estimate of how many San Francisco residents or what portion of San Francisco residents have struggled with their mental health? I mean, in general, the, the population is about one in five individuals, so about 20 percent uh, of the general population of San Francisco or the, the United States itself. That was Mark Salazar, executive director of the Mental Health Association of San Francisco. I'm Laura Wenis. You've been listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. Civic is a production of the San Francisco Public Press, sfpublicpress.org. Your host is Laura Wenis, producer and contributor Mel Baker. Thanks for listening.